traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The statue of the storm god stood on a base designed as an ox-drawn cart. Between the animal's feet, on the back of the cart, and partly on the surface and side of the base, the king set down his words in Phoenician script. I am Awariku, Muxa's grandson, king of the Hiawaiians, Tarhunza's servant, the sun god's man. I caused the plain of Hiawa to prosper because of Tarhunza and my paternal gods. And I added horse to horse, army to army. And so the king of the Assyrians and the entire house of Assur became father and mother to me. And Hiawa and Assur became one house. Indeed, I smote strong fortresses. And I built toward the east eight and toward the west seven fortresses. In 727 B.C., when word arrived of Tiglath-Pileser's death, Awariku had been ruling Hiawa, or Quay, for over a dozen years. As we mentioned, Hiawa derives from Ahiawa, or Achaean, flagging the ruling dynasty's ties to the former Mycenaean Greeks. Much like the nearby Taita of Patan had called his kingdom Palestinian flagging its ties with the Philistine slash Peliset, who'd also hailed from Greece. A century earlier, both kingdoms had fought tooth and nail against Shalmaneser III. Now Patton was gone, and Awariku had joined his house to Assyria, an Assyria remade by Tiglath-Pileser and now in the hands of his son. One reflection of the major changes wrought by the previous king was that his son, Shalmaneser V, didn't take power as king of Assyria, but as king of Assyria and Babylon, which is a story I'll cover in a Patreon episode. Being at the opposite end of the empire, and likely not knowing his Kassites from his Chaldeans, Awariku may not have had much sense of how profound a change it was. The issues taking up his bandwidth remained much closer to home. Though, again, after Tiglath-Pileser, no longer in nearby Syria. Bordered on his east by Assyrian loyalists, Tarhulara of Gurgum and Bar-Rakib of Samal, and with everything between there and the Euphrates provincialized, northern Syria had become stable, predictable, and relatively non-threatening. The lands that merited keeping an eye on were those on his other frontiers. Cyprus to the south, Hilaku to the west, and to the north, Tabal and Phrygia. Contemporary Cyprus hosted three main polities, indigenous, Greek, and Phoenician, dispersed across nearly a dozen kingdoms. 
Where copper production had been a driving force, particularly after Hazael's destruction of Gath, the island's economy had recently grown more diverse. With copper production diminishing and iron production rising to accommodate the growing regional preference. The Phoenician presence helped bolster trade with other far flung regions. But another aspect of the Cypriot economy was much more problematic. Piracy, tolerated, promoted, or even instigated by some kingdoms, was a constant concern along coastal quay. Similarly, in neighboring Halaku, the future territory of rough Cilicia, the lack of a powerful central authority meant pirate activity flourished with relative impunity, as it would again 700 years later before being reined in by Pompey. Just north of Quay, between the Hollis River and the Taurus Mountains, lay the Neo-Hittite kingdoms of Tabal. From 24 kingdoms a century earlier, they'd eventually consolidated to five. Tabal proper, Atuna, Hupishna, Shinutu, and Tuwana. Some, like Tabal, held significant territory, while others, like Shinutu, were basically just one city. All of them, like Quay, were Neo-Assyrian vassals. And I've even made a brand new map for you guys to help you follow along. The Tabalian ruling dynasty had likely been founded a century earlier by a king named Tuwati I. A more recent successor, Wasusarma, the son of Tuwati II, left us a lengthy inscription. The text describes the king's long and bloody and eventually successful, war against a neighboring land called Parzata, which likely lay along Tabal's western frontier. Wasusarma describes eight kings, a mix of what he calls lower and more important ones, as being hostile to him, and lists three others as friends. Among the latter were Kia Kia of the Tabalian kingdom of Shinutu and Warpalawa II of the Tabalian kingdom of Tuwana. In the inscription, Wasusarma refers to himself as great king and hero, titles evoking the old Hittite empire. According to historian Trevor Bryce, it was precisely his use of such grandiose titles that incurred the wrath of Assyria. Accusing his tributary of acting as his equal, Tiglath-Pileser deposed Wasusarma, replacing him with Tabal's current ruler, a son of a nobody named Huli. The longest reigning Tabalian ruler was Warpalawa II of Tuwana, who, like Awariku of Quay, had already been ruling for roughly a dozen years. As the southeasternmost Tabalian kingdom, Tawana essentially shared a border with Quay, and Awariku probably relied on contacts with his Tabalian neighbor to monitor events further north. Chief among these being the growing strength and growing aggressiveness of the Phrygian Mushki alliance. At the time of Tiglath-Pileser's death, the alliance, which I'll just start calling the Phrygians, was ruled by a king named Gordius. As Bryce notes, his namesake Phrygian capital of Gordian was located on the Sangarius River, about a hundred kilometers southwest of the modern Turkish capital of Ankara. 
It was an impressive, massively fortified city, whose most prominent feature was a citadel mound in which was located the palace complex. A large field of enormous mound-style tombs extended outside the city walls. Gordius belongs to that category of kings like Philip II of Macedon or Phraates I of Parthia, who spent their lifetime building a foundation for their immediate successor to explode from. It's unclear whether, in the time of his reign, Phrygia was already pushing across the Hollis River toward the land surrounding Hattusas, or intimidating neighboring kingdoms into accepting Phrygian domination. The only thing we know for sure is that both these initiatives would be fully developed under his legendary son, King Midas. So, again, these were the lands on which Awariku likely focused the bulk of his attention, especially regarding any developments that might spark an Assyrian response. But the first time that Awariku got word that Shalmaneser V was crossing the Euphrates, his target was way down south in the kingdom of Samaria. As you may recall, Samaria, the much-reduced territories of the former Israel, was currently being ruled by an Assyrian-backed usurper named Hoshea. The Bible notably Second Kings, gives us the reason for the 725 campaign. Shalmaneser V, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. The current Egyptian pharaoh was still P.A. or Pianki of the Kushite 25th dynasty. But the Kushan strongholds of Thebes and Napata were quite a ways to the south. So the Samarian envoys instead approached a local king named So, likely Osorkon IV of the delta city of Tanis. Which, I should mention, I actually visited this April and which was unsurprisingly very cool. I'll post a few pictures. Osorkon was technically a vassal of Pianki, but in reality ruled independently. Still, after meeting the envoys, he decided an alliance wasn't worth the risk and sent them back empty-handed. As far as who may have tipped Shalmaneser off about the Samarian visit to Egypt, well, keep in mind that they passed both ways through Assyrian loyalist Judah. Accounts of Shalmaneser's campaign and of his reign in general are fragmentary and spread across a number of sources, including biblical passages, the Babylonian chronicle, and the inscriptions of the later Assyrian king, Sargon II. In a recent article, historians Keiko and Shigeo Yamada do a bang-up job of reconciling these accounts. To start with, they propose that Based on the evidence, Shalmaneser V first marched into Samaria in his second or third regnal year, 725 or 724 BC. As Second Kings describes the campaign, the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years, likely until 722 BC. 
It also reports that at the end of the siege, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozon on the Kabur River, and in the towns of the Medes. The usurper and rebel king Hoshea was seized and put into prison. The Yamadas add that shortly after its annexation, Samaria was resettled with people from Babylon and Kutha. So Shalmaneser was clearly reading from his father's playbook. Extended sieges, provincialization, and large-scale population swaps. And again, by the end of the process, the kingdom of Israel was gone. These are also the events that led to the emergence of a separate Samaritan versus Israelite identity. Modern Samaritans claim descent from a Jewish tribe that avoided deportation, while the Israelites claim that the original Samaritans were resettled immigrants from Kutha. While he was in the area, Shalmaneser was forced to take action against another recently installed Assyrian-backed usurper-turned-rebel, Matan II of Tyre. And again, I need to thank the Yamadas for helping untangle events. The primary source is a history of Tyre written in the 2nd century BC by Menander of Ephesus, which was quoted by the later Jewish-Roman historian Josephus. According to Menander, the Assyrian king Shalmaneser came up against all Phoenicia and after making a treaty of peace with all the cities, withdrew from the land. The coastal cities, including Sidon, revolted against Tyre and surrendered to the king of Assyria. Unpacking that a bit, it sounds like all the Phoenician cities, except for Tyre, made peace slash submitted to Assyria. Describing these cities as revolting against Tyre just meant that they refused to follow Tyre's lead. The Yamadas continue that, as the Tyrians did not submit, the king of Assyria came back and did sea battle against Tyre with the support of other Phoenicians. But the Tyrians defeated the enemy at sea, taking 500 prisoners. So, the Assyrians didn't really have a navy, so the sea battle in question was entirely Phoenician-on-Phoenician Phoenician action. At the end of which, to Assyria's chagrin, the Tyrians emerged victorious. In the wake of this failure, the king of Assyria, on leaving the region, decided to blockade the Tyrians. There are several parts of Menander's account that lead to a bit of confusion. Firstly, he names the Tyrian king not as Matan II, but as, quote, Elulaios, or Luli, who was also called Peel, as in P-Y-L. The Yamadas attribute this to some garbling of the story. P-Y-L Peel likely refers to P-U-L Pull, which we know was Tiglath Pileser's personal name. And Elulaios meaning born in the month of Ulayu, was Shalmaneser V's personal name, used in his earlier correspondence as crown prince. So take the whole Luli thing with a grain of salt. We're likely still talking about Matan. Menander also says Luli of Tyre had a reign of 36 years. 
Now, Matan came to power in 732, and the next named king of Tyre, Silta, shows up in the records around 709. So, 36 years is probably just bad math, or an exaggeration. The final confusing bit is that Menander claims that the Tyrians successfully weathered the blockade for five years, which is longer than the rest of Shalmaneser's reign, which probably means that the siege was maintained during the first few years of his successor. Now, far be it from me to criticize Tiglath Pileser III, but he might have spent a bit more time vetting his local usurpers. Because in addition to Hoshea and Matan, we've also got trouble with Huli. As I mentioned earlier, Tiglath Pileser had installed a son of a nobody named Huli to the throne of Tabal due to a fence at his predecessor's lofty heirs. But then Huli somehow got on Shalmaneser's nerves. While prosecuting his sieges of Samaria and Tyre, the king also sent an Assyrian army into Tabal to remove Huli and deport him to Assyria, likely replacing him with another local prince. But don't shed too many tears for Huli, because he'll actually pop up again later. So again, Shalmaneser V appeared to be ruling in the mold of his legendary father, from annexations right on down to avenging personal slights. And again, he was also king of Babylonia, which had a whole separate constellation of challenges. Still, his Syrian actions were a reasonably strong start, and it's interesting to ponder what he may have accomplished with a long, full reign at the head of a unified empire. But, of course, that would just be speculation. In 722, our friend Awariku got the news that the young king Shalmaneser V was dead. The Yamadas note that, in confirmation of other sources, the Babylonian Chronicle records that the king died in the month of Tebeth in his fifth regnal year. It also records that his successor ascended the Assyrian throne less than two weeks after his death. And while that sounds like a reasonably brief interregnum, it was also steeped in blood. As the Yamadas relate, the circumstances of the end of Shalmaneser V's reign and the rise of Sargon II remain obscure due to the shortage of sources. But Sargon's later deportation of thousands of guilty, transgressing Assyrians implies that he'd usurped the throne in the face of strong opposition. And though he pardoned those who opposed his rise, he also distanced them from Assyria's heartland by resettling them in Hamath. As to why Hamath, we'll get to that in a minute. In terms of his background, Sargon II may have been anything from a full or half-brother of Shalmaneser V, to the scion of an alternate branch of the royal family, to a governor, general, or other senior official. It's also worth noting that we have zero records of Assyrian unrest during Shalmaneser's reign, though in fairness we don't really have many records at all. But I mean, this wasn't like the era of Ashur-Nirari V, filled with revolts and plagues and eclipses and enemies at the gate. 
In the wake of Tiglath-Pileser's conquests and reforms, the Assyrian Empire of 722 was larger, stronger, better run, and better organized than at any other time in its history. How and why the dynasty was overthrown remains a very open question. Sargon II attributed his rise to no less a figure than Asur. As the Yamadas relate, Sargon claimed that the god overthrew, in his rage, the reign of his predecessor, Shalmaneser V, who did not reverence him and his privileged city, i.e. the ancient capital of Asur which might suggest that Sargon had strong ties to that city. But that's about the extent of our knowledge. While a usurpation is almost certain, and its quick success also tells us something, almost every other aspect remains a mystery. That said, Sargon's break with the previous regime could not have been more clear. Historian Natalie Naomi May highlights that in addition to barely referencing his immediate predecessors, Sargon abandoned the traditional royal names from the Middle Assyrian period. Instead, he named himself after the ancient Akkadian hero king Sargon the Great, who'd reigned 1,500 years earlier. And, by the way, in both their cases, naming yourself Sargon, Sharukinu, or True King is an effective way of announcing that you are anything but. And, also like the original, this Sargon was forced to start his reign with the massive imperial rebellion. For Awariku of Quay, it must have seemed like a sudden thunderstorm right out of a clear blue sky. The death of Shalmaneser, the elevation of Sargon, then, possibly in response news that the current Hamathite king had gone into open rebellion. The king in question, Yalbidi, was successor to Ani Elu, the king who'd ruled when Tiglath-Pileser crushed the revolt to neighboring Luash. So there's at least a shadow of an argument that Yalbidi was just being loyal to the previous dynasty. For his part, in a later inscription, Sargon II refers to Yaubidi as a rebel, a low-class person with no right to the throne, and unworthy of the palace. Which, if he wasn't just being catty, might mean that Yaubidi was a usurper. As an interesting aside, historian Mordecai Kogan flags that the Yao in Yaubidi is the normal Assyrian transcription of the name of the Israelite god, Yahweh. Consequently, Yaubidi has been taken either as an Israelite living in Hamath, or an Aramean who had adopted the worship of Yahweh. From Hamath, the rebellion quickly spread to Arpad, Damascus, and Samaria, all of which, if I may remind you, were current Assyrian provinces. Kogan notes that, based on the placement of royal stelae marking the borders of reconquered territories, it's reasonably likely that provincialized Patton also joined the revolt. The Phoenicians got into the game as well, at least the minor kingdom of Samira near Hamath. 
It's also important to keep in mind that some part of the Assyrian army was still prosecuting the siege of Tyre begun by Shalmaneser. Yalbidi apparently kicked things off by destroying Assyrian garrisons. Kogan highlights Sargon's claim that Yalbidi killed the citizens of Assyria who were present and left no one alive. The garrisons may have been minimally manned, with at least some soldiers summoned back east to fight in the contested succession. After liberating the captive provinces, Yalbidi helped install former dynasts, or, you know, whoever was left, back on their respective thrones. So we've got Damascus, Samaria, Arpad, and Patton all under the leadership of Hamath. And once imperial forces were purged, the rebel alliance likely focused on planning a regional defense. They figured they had at least some time. It was common knowledge that not only was Sargon having difficulty shoring up his new regime, but he was also tied down with a major revolt in Babylon. In fact, as the next year unfolded, rumors likely made their way west that Sargon had lost control of Babylonia to an alliance of Chaldeans and Elamites, which, for opponents of Sargon, was clearly the good news. The bad news was that with Babylon lost, Sargon could focus all his attention on the rebellious territories of Syria. Considering the situation, a situation for which Sargon bore sole responsibility, the threat was existential. Sargon had taken a stable empire and thrown it back into chaos. He also knew that if he lost the West, his newly won kingship was finished. In 720 BC, with that motivation firmly in hand, Sargon marched across the Euphrates to triumph or be destroyed. He faced at least one clear disadvantage. As local defender, Yalbidi had the luxury of choosing the most desirable place to confront him. The king selected a site in the very heart of the rebel northern territories, along the Orontes River between Hamath, Arpad, and Patton. As Kogan notes, the chosen battlefield was well-suited to open-field warfare, ideal for the infantry, cavalry, and chariotry used by both sides. But, in truth, the symbolism may have outstripped the practical considerations. Because when you're assembling a coalition of northern and southern Syrian kingdoms to defend the west against Neo-Assyria, it's hard to come up with a better spot than Karkar. Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.